Welcome to this bonus ianabernethy.com podcast where we'll be discussing karate and self-protection, injuries and we'll be answering listeners' questions. Hello everyone, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the bonus podcast. As you may remember from the May podcast, we'd been having a discussion on the length of the podcast, which had been increasing as uh, in recent uh, episodes. So what I decided to do was I'm going to continue the themed monthly podcasts with no extra um, listeners' questions and answers or anything like that to get the length down a little bit. And we'll supplement them with these occasional uh, bonus podcasts so that way no content is, is uh, lost for those who like the, the longer podcast. So hopefully this is a bit of a win-win. Oh, quite a bit to bring you in this uh, bonus podcast. Uh, the first thing I'd just like to say is thanks to everyone for their understanding with regards to the email situation. I mentioned in the last podcast how it had gotten a little bit out of control and it was now more less, it was impossible for me to keep up with the number of emails I've been receiving. So people have been communicating via Facebook and Twitter and the site and the, the fact that um, people haven't been sending me quite as many emails has freed up a bit of time already, um, which has enabled me to bring you this bonus podcast and a few other things. So one of the other things that we've uh, I've, I've brought you um, since the last uh, podcast um, was I've added a few articles to the website the first of which was The Dynamic Nature of Judo Kata by Linda Yayanakis hope I'm pronouncing Linda's surname correctly uh, but Linda is a brilliant writer she's got some fantastic stuff and she sent me this article saying oh, if you like it then you can add it to the site and it's superb I think it's one of the best things we've had added to the site in a, a long time uh, whether you're a judoka or you're not a judoka if you, um, the, just the, ver- the discussion on kata itself uh, I think applies to any martial art that involves kata it's, it's superb piece it's brilliant um so it, it's linda uh, interviewing one of a judo sensei and the, the level of depth of information is amazing so if you haven't seen that yet be sure to go on the website look under the article section uh, the dynamic nature of judo kata just check that one out I've also added an article by myself uh, called uh, My Stance on Stances, which is an article version of the podcast that we did last uh, last year. So for those who you know prefer reading rather than listening or want a version to print out or whatever, you can find that uh, online there as well. Uh, also added um, an interview that I did some time ago with Grandmaster Yamada, where Yamada talks about um, his uh, Shukakai training, his, his training under uh, Tani, uh, Tani's training under uh, Mabuni, the founder of Shitoryu, uh, the jiu-jitsu influence on Shitoryu and Chukakai and Kata uh, and its application. It's a really, really good interview. I had the privilege of training with uh, Yamada uh, on a, a trip uh, to Japan and uh, brilliant guys, uh, very warm, uh, very, very knowledgeable, uh, teaches in a way that uh, I really kind of liked, I really warmed to. So you check out that interview too. So there's three articles for you to uh, to check out. Um, one other thing that I've, I've done as well. So thanks to everyone who did donated to these podcasts and, and, and give a little bit of financial support. What I've, what I've done is I've reinvested that. Um, for the people that um, have invested, I've put that money to one side and I've used it to buy a um, pocket-sized high-definition camera. And what I'm going to use that for is it's been dropped into the kit bag. Uh, whenever I go to uh, my class, my training, seminars, that'll be with me. If I'm doing anything or teaching anything or my students are doing something that I think you might find of, of interest, I now have a means to record that. So what I'm hoping to, to bring you is a lot more uh, video content on the site as well so you get to see some drills and techniques and 
and all kinds of other things. Um, so thanks to everyone who's made that possible, and I'm sure that everyone will enjoy the extra uh, video content. So it's just me filming it, no fancy editing, no uh, sound or lighting like we've done for the, the DVDs. So uh, the quality will be watchable, and hopefully the information will make up for the lack of kind of uh, a professional film crew there, you know. But uh, still, you know, hopefully that's... I'm teaching a lot, I'm uh, training a lot, so it'll be nice to be able to get that footage to you as well. So uh, that's something else to look forward to. Uh, one other thing I've been able to do with the uh, extra time that the uh, reduction in emails has afforded me is we've added a few um, uh, extra um, discussions to the forum as well. So I want to bring some of the stuff that I've wrote in those um, forum discussions to you as well. So we're going to start with a discussion on where karate fails with regards to self-protection. And I've said karate, but I think it's true of most martial arts. These failings are pretty common. Uh, although obviously as a karate, I'm looking at it from a, a, a karate perspective. Um, so we're going to have a little discussion on that. We're also going to have a discussion on injury prevention and injury management uh, in this uh, podcast. And then we're going to do the listeners' uh, questions, which we got through uh, Facebook and Twitter, and some really uh, good questions as well. So hope my uh, answers do them justice. So I uh, hope that's you up to speed. I hope what we've got planned for you sounds interesting. And I'll now uh, leave this introduction behind and start talking to you about karate's main failings in relation to self-protection. So I'm currently preparing a rather lengthy work on the most common failings of modern karate uh, when it comes to self-protection um, and how these can be rectified. Um, now it's very common to see karate promoted as a form of self-defense. More as every advert you see for a karate club, you know, will have self-defense listed as one of the benefits of training. But I think it'd be fair to say there are some common and very significant failings in, in that regard. So um, what I've got here is a little list for you of what I think these failings uh, are. And we discussed this on the, the forum as well. So if you want to go to the, the forum of ianabernethy.com, you can uh, see the discussion that uh, started off from this initial uh, uh, list of points. So let's go through the points. Okay, so my first one is the failure to define and differentiate between contexts. And what I mean by this is when we see art, culture and sport presented uh, as self-protection or their training methods deemed valid for self-protection, either through ignorance of the nature and needs of differing contexts or self-deception based on an over-attachment to a given training mythology. And then we discussed it a lot, uh, that a lot in the Marshall Map podcast. So if you haven't listened to that one, uh, that will probably further clarify what I mean. So that's point one, the failure to define and differentiate between contexts. Uh, point two, the failure to teach the core concepts of awareness. So without awareness, there can be no avoidance, and the enemy is always going to be given the huge advantage of surprise. And it's not sufficient to simply say, be aware, as a student needs educated how to be aware and what to be aware of. Uh, point three, um, a failure to teach the key principles of conflict management and de-escalation. Now, again, it's no good to say don't fight unless you have to and then not teach how the physical confrontation could have been avoided. So I think these things need integrated into um, to teaching. Uh, point four, a failure to teach the basics of the law. Um, now, you see a misunderstanding and, uh, and misinformation about the law presented as fact all the time in the martial arts. And this leads to uh, unnecessary fear uh, and of consequence, um, doubt about the legality of actions and potential legal problems post-instance. So you need to educate people on what the law is. Um, in the UK, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but in the UK, I think the self-defence law is actually very, very good. Um, it doesn't expect you to judge to a nicety the level of force used, but most people think it does. Uh, it does allow you to strike first if you honestly believe you're going to be attacked. It acknowledges that um, you, your belief 
uh, about the situation may be mistaken. You, you may get things wrong, but if you honestly believe the situation to be as you did, you're entitled to rely on that understanding. Uh, UK self-defence law, in my view, is absolutely brilliant. And the great thing about it is, once you educate yourself on it, you can forget about it. The, the, the people who worry that, um, oh, you know, if I hit him too hard, I'm going to go to jail, and blah, all this kind of, it just doesn't work that way in the UK. The law isn't written that way, and it doesn't work that way on the ground. Um, it might be a little bit different from those working in security. You know, if you're a bouncer, it's a slightly different situation to those defending themselves in a civilian situation. But from a civilian perspective, UK law is really, really good. So um, we need to be uh, educating your students on that for wherever you happen to uh, to live in your part of the world. Uh, point five, a failure to teach effective escape skills and tactics. So throughout the martial arts, there's often an assumed fight to the finish mentality. Uh, which no doubt spills over from competitive martial arts, as opposed to a fight-to-flee mentality, which is far better for self-protection. Now again, it's no good to say run away if you can without teaching the associated skills needed to disengage and effectively escape individuals and groups. You know, If you want those escape skills, and in, in fact even that escape instinct, it needs to be something that you, uh, you practice. Uh, point six, uh, the failure to teach realistic ways to deal with weapons. Uh, we frequently um, see unrealistic attacks, uh, i.e. Oizuki-style knife thrusts before freeze-framing, and unrealistic defences, i.e. locks and complex disarms. What we should see is frantic close-range pumping and slashing for the attacks, and for the defences we need an emphasis on weapon awareness, preemption, stopping on the draw, uh, dealing with the enemy and not fixating on the weapon and ignoring the guy wielding the weapon. Uh, creating distance, um, effective control if totally necessary, i.e. not complex grips and locks, and getting out of there at the first opportunity. Uh, we also need to differentiate between many of the artistic methods uh, that have no bearing on reality and um, those methods that we should be genuinely uh, using. So, you know, if, if we happen to have historical methods passed on to us that you want to keep for historical interest or the sheer enjoyment of doing them, well, fine. But we need to acknowledge that some of these methods aren't exactly uh, pragmatic. Um, so, again, this, that differentiation need, needs to be made. Uh, point seven, we should judge blows by their ability to incapacitate and not by any arbitrary aesthetics, which may actually inhibit function in some cases. Um, far too often, the quality of a strike is judged by the arbitrary dictates of style uh, and aesthetics and not by function. Karate can need to spend much more time hitting things and measuring by effect. I mean, it's one of the things that amazes me that so few karate include impact work as part of the regular uh, training, but there you go. Anyway, effect should be first and foremost, and all else is secondary. Um, but not that, not that it really matters, but a highly effective um, and highly developed technique will be aesthetically pleasing. However, just because a technique is aesthetically pleasing does not mean it is effective. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Power isn't. Um, power can be uh, empirically measured. So we should be um, testing and, and measuring by effect and not by any um, more arbitrary uh, methods. Point eight, uh, and this is an important one, too much emphasis placed on reaction as opposed to preemption and being proactive. Uh, what I mean by this is the fundamentally flawed kind of, if he does this, you do this kind of um, approach to dealing with violence. Because if you're always responding to the enemy and, and trained to respond to the enemy, that effectively puts the enemy in charge and gives them the huge advantage of setting the agenda. I mean, sure, you need to be able to stop what comes at you, but the emphasis should firmly be placed on developing the skills and mindset that have the karate to take the dominant position when conflict cannot be avoided. That way it's the enemy that's on the back foot and not the karateka. 
Now, even in some of the more allegedly practical quarters of the martial arts, we still see reaction being taught as the predominant way of thinking. Um, this is not at all practical, though, and, and we need to see preemption, so striking before the conflict begins, and proaction, so taking control of the fight once it has begun, you know, um, setting the agenda so we can dominate and, and set up the, uh, the opportunity to flee. We need to see those two things, preemption and proaction, being put first and foremost in, in training and in mindset. Uh, point nine, everything always being practiced one-on-one. -on -one. And again, this is a big one throughout the martial arts. Real situations, as I'm sure you know, are not always one-on-one. -on -one. You may well have multiple enemies to deal with or loved ones to protect. The tactics associated with a one-on-one -on -one fight will leave you and your loved ones vulnerable and will not cut it when the numbers increase. Dealing with multiples, both in terms of uh, attackers and people you want to defend needs to be drilled and practiced because it's ridiculous to expect to have the associated skills magically manifest when needed and yet that's exactly what we see in most karate dojo and to be fair to most other martial arts too multiple enemies are not drilled anywhere near as much as they should be um, now just on on this one as well is sometimes i've heard this said oh yeah but there's no point of drilling multiple opponents because you can't outfight multiple people anyway so i mean oh, Okay, so you just lie down and give up, effectively, is what you're saying there. Um, what the mean is we don't want to do it. We like drilling one-on-one. -on -one. We realise that certain tactics and methods that we use work well on one-on-one, -on -one, and if we make it into two-on-one you know, or three-on-one or three-on-two, we know these kind of tactics aren't going to work. So we don't want to kind of expose the weaknesses in the system. Um, and the right, of course, there is an element of truth. You can't outfight, or it's very difficult to outfight, multiple people, you know. Um, the idea of the good guy stands there and he's got seven people knocked out on the ground happens in the movies. It doesn't really happen in real life. But we don't, again, it's the mindset, as I said before, we don't fight to win, we fight to escape, you know. Um, um, and that needs to be practiced. If, you, if, if you're fighting with multiple opponents, do it in the dojo. You'll quickly find if you engage with any one person for too long, which is obviously the way it is in one-on-one -on -one situations, the other ones have a free shot. Oh, so this is something that needs to be practiced and drilled. So it's instinctual, and we're not expecting people to make that kind of tactical and mindset switch in the heat of uh, conflict. Okay, and a, a related one, point 10, a failure to drill realistic scenarios live. Um, to be able to test and develop effective skills, live training needs to be part of what you do. And this idea of training live, I think, is, is, is growing in, in popularity. Most people, it's self-evident, and most people are kind of accepting that now. Um, but again, I still think people misunderstand it when it comes to self-protection, right? Just because you're drilling live one way doesn't mean it, that's realistic, you know? So, for example, if I spent half an hour uh, rolling around on the ground with my partner, that's live. Um, but it's not a realistic scenario. You know, you don't get an hour or half an hour to roll around on the ground in self-defense. I'm not saying rolling around on the ground for half an hour is bad. You know, it, it's good fun. It's, it's good fighting skills. But we need to add in the realism of if you stay on the ground for too long there, you're going to get, you know, kicked senseless. And from the martial arts point, um, the karate, sorry, point of, of view, they often go, yeah, yeah, we drill things live um, because we spar. Now, most dojo sparring is live, um, but that's not enough because the skills developed through consensual unarmed dojo fighting do not cut and paste to other contexts. Um, we need to gain experience in the dojo of effectively escaping, dealing with multiple enemies, protecting others, and so on and so on. Uh, theory and technique, while vitally important, are not enough unless actually put into practice in a way that closely uh, replicates reality uh, as far as safety and practicality allow. 
point 11. Uh, practicing only one combative aspect of karate to the exclusion of all others. So, although on the win, it's still very common to see karateka focus solely on punches and kicks and totally ignore the gripping, the limb control, uh, the escapes, etc., found within traditional kata. Indeed, so ignored are these elements uh, that motions that have uh, have been reinterpreted into implausible strikes and blocks. I mean, you look at the kata, what's obviously a throw gets, oh no, that's two blocks, it's a low block and a high block. It doesn't make any sense that. When you look at the motion from a grappling perspective, yeah, it's a throw, it's obvious what it is. Um, so of this this fixating on one range and reinterpreting things for one range uh, makes their take on karate into a partial art. And their mono-range training leaves them totally unprepared for the unrestricted nature of civilian conflict. Uh, point 12. A failure to develop uh, the right combative mindset. Now, a misunderstanding of the Do concept has led to uh, the right combative mindset being discouraged and replaced with an overly mystical kind of thinking. Uh, laser focus, super intense, in the moment aggression is what is needed. Uh, not a Zen-like state of otherworldly detachment. Um, egotistical instructions and a perversion of dojo etiquette has also led to subservience being an encouraged trait in some quarters. Uh, and this runs contrary to the sense of self needed to forcefully defy the will of any assailant. And what I mean by this is the students have become conditioned to unquestioningly obey the dojo tyrant. And hence they're very likely to unquestioningly obey other tyrants too. Um, now obviously, you know... That's not true of all dojos, and I'm not knocking the general idea of etiquette, but you get the idea. If you've got somebody who's bowing and scraping and never questioning, and um, you've got that kind of, uh, like almost like an abusive relationship between instructor and student, then that, that, that's not going to help them uh, deal with uh, abusive people outside the dojo. In, in, in fact, you know, it, it's going to run against them because they haven't developed that sense of self. You know, to say, no, that's, that's, that's not acceptable. Uh, to me, real... Um, Dojo discipline is something that comes from within. It's about you know working hard and not not quitting when it's 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 difficult. About demanding the best from yourself. It's not about having some guy scream and shout at you from the front and you do whatever ever you're told. You know, um, like some kind of mindless lackey. And that, now that was my initial kind of twelve points. Now what was came up in the forum discussion was quite a few people said the need for simplicity needs included as well. Now I'd originally thought that well that kind of comes in at number one. Uh, with the failure to define between uh, uh, conf uh, contexts. When we're sparring uh, or, or fighting another martial artist, com complex things can work pretty well. The the guy that you're fighting will be used to seeing, you know, he does the same style as you, trades the same way as you, so he's used to seeing certain methods. So if if I do something complex, it can be off radar. It can, oh wow, I didn't expect that. What I thought you were going to do was this. When you move contexts, when you move into the self-defense uh, realm of things, um, it's simplicity that's key. Complexity will get you into a great deal of trouble. And those people who don't appreciate that, again, are falling foul of number one. It's mono-context thinking. Um, because something works in one context, then therefore it must work in all other contexts. And that's not the way that it works. Uh, but, but anyway, enough people had said about you know the need for simplicity needs brought out as a as an extra one, and I think that that's probably true. So, so point thirteen, the need to keep things simple. Now, the trouble with this is people think, oh, simple means um, uh, basic. You know, I, I teach a beginner a technique. Uh, it was a simple technique for the beginner. Therefore, beginners are just as capable of defending themselves as higher grades. And that's not it. There's a few faults with that thinking. Uh, one is um, simplicity. Uh, 
like for example, a cross is a simple technique, but that doesn't mean a reverse punch, whatever you want to call it. But that that doesn't mean that you show somebody it once and they can use it immediately. You know that they'll be as effective. My reverse punch, having trained for you know a, a few decades, is a lot more refined, is a lot better, uh, and, and even you know mechanically, it's a lot simpler than the guy who learnt it kind of ten minutes ago. So when we're saying keep it simple, what we mean is refine the simplicity because the other element of this is as well people see um, progression as being more complex so the more complex a technique is the more advanced it is therefore the better it is now that's not the way it works in a self-protection um, scenario that we learn a technique and the way we get better at defending ourselves is by refining that technique endlessly there's a lot of work to be done there simple doesn't always mean kind of easy you know it just means simple so what we need to make sure that we do is we refine that simplicity and we don't start to think is yes yeah, simplicity is something for lower grades complexity is something for higher grades that's not the way it works from a self-protection perspective the way it works from self-protection is simplicity is the way we start for, for beginners we teach them simple this is what you want to do in a self-defense situation and for the higher grades they have a highly refined form of that simplicity but we need to remember that um, self-protection situations don't reward the complex. Um, complexity is not needed, and it's often severely punished. Um, I have a rather simple mantra for that, which is simple su will succeed, and flash will, Anglo-Saxon word beginning with F, up. All right, so it will, <clears throat> up. All right, simple will succeed, flash will, up. So what we need to make sure we do is we keep it as simple as, uh, as we possibly can. And so I hope that was interesting to you. So th th let's go through those uh, 13 points again, okay? So these are, the, as I see them, the, the main failings uh, from karate with regards to self-protection. So number one, the failure to define and differentiate between contexts. Number two, a failure to teach the core concepts of awareness. Number three, a failure to teach the key principles of conflict management and de-escalation. Point four, a failure to teach the basics of the law. Point five, a failure to teach effective escapes and tactics. Um... Number six, uh, the fa a failure to teach realistic ways to deal with weapons. Number seven, we should judge blows by their ability to incapacitate and not by any arbitrary aesthetics. Point eight, too much emphasis placed on reaction as opposed to preemption and being proactive. Point nine, everything always been practiced one-on-one. -on -one. Point ten, a failure to drill realistic scenarios live. Point eleven, practicing only one combative aspect of karate to the exclusion of all others. Uh, point 12, a failure to develop the right combative mindset. And point 13, a failure to keep things simple and believing that complex means better. So I hope they're of interest to you. If you want to get involved with the discussion, of course, relating to that, then by all means uh, pop along to the forum and uh, do so. One other discussion we've had on the forum recently was relating to uh, injury prevention and management. And this came from a Facebook conversation we've been having. I've been suffering from a, a bad shoulder for a little while. And uh, that came up and John Titchen had thought that that would make a, a good uh, forum topic. And so John kicked it off. And what I'm going to go through now is my kind of response to that. But I mean, check out the, the whole topic because the great thing about the forum is um, everybody contributes to it. So you, you get... a 
not just kind of one person's view on things, you get everybody's view on things. So, uh, and there's new information being put up there every single day. But anyway, here's, here's my kind of point. So, um, so for like most people, I've had innumerable minor injuries and have a handful of major injuries over the years as well. None of them were any fun and all of them hampered my training and life in general. So, you know, here were my kind of thoughts on, on uh, general injuries. So uh, my first point was that prevention is better than cure. So when I look back on the major injuries I've had, the cause could be traced back to a failure of safety precautions. Um, This is generally due to myself or training partners failing to discharge our duties effectively. Um, I popped my left knee, couldn't kick for a year on it, took a long time to get over, uh, because uh, a partner forced a throw when my foot had got stuck against uh, the mat. And so I resisted the throw, should maybe have gone with it. Uh, He kept on tugging, should maybe realise I wasn't moving as smoothly as I should like, and force goes through the knee pop away it goes so um i also another bad injury i had i split my thumb in two uh lengthways um snapped the the, the bone along its length uh, i went to have it x-rayed the radiographer came out and smiled at me and said you don't do things by halves do you uh which worried me so my thumb's a little bit messed up but it, it's kind of back to um it, it's almost fully functional now it looks a bit ugly but it works so when I split in two, that was because I didn't break fall correctly. Uh, we were practicing throws. I didn't break fall. I actually landed on the mat. I bounced, believe it or not, and landed on my own thumb. Um, and then obviously snapped it clean in two. Uh, I had a bad shoulder injury. Uh, this isn't the, the recent one. Um, this is one, it was a really bad one going back a long time ago. Uh, because I was lifting uh, heavy weights without a spotter. Uh, the weight started to uh, fall backwards. Uh, I couldn't drop it safely. I tried to pull it back in and as a result ripped all the kind of uh, the connecting tissue around my, my shoulder joint. Um, so yeah, oh, and by the way, you know, if you're looking at the picture that I've associated with this podcast, that was the picture taken when I popped my knee. That was the, and you can see the, the gas and air bottle there and the, the driver of the ambulance, um, gassing me up and getting ready to be, to, to move me. So, uh, Murray took that photograph by the way. So, um, on his mobile phone. So that was in September, 2004, I think. Um, so yeah, you know, Murray from the books and DVD. So he's a good friend, you know, I'm lying on the floor with my knee pop. First thing he does is get his camera out and take photographs. Nice one. Like it. Um, <laughs> so the next one. So yeah, prevention's better than cure, you know, so, so make sure our safety precautions are in place when we're training. Uh, I also think, uh, my second point was we should train for injury prevention. So I think that the stronger bones, uh, ligaments and tendons that have resulted from decades of weightlifting have definitely helped me avoid injury in martial arts training. Um, I also think that the stretching to keep muscles loose and pliable has also prevented pulls and tears in the rough and tumble of martial training. So, um, you know, uh, keeping yourself loose, keeping yourself strong, all that kind of stuff will help you avoid injuries as well. Also remember, so my next point is we need to push ourselves but not destroy ourselves. Um, the bottom line is, if we do what we can already do, then there's no progress. You know, If you leave a session thinking, well, that was easy or that didn't feel too bad, well, you haven't made any progress in that session. So we need to go beyond what we can do, but not so far beyond that point that injury is inevitable. Um, so we train most effectively when we're just outside our current limits. So trying to do what's way beyond us in a rush to improve is counterproductive and will result in injury. So you see this all the time, you know, the guy who's just started and tries to kick it out by his third class, you know, um, the person who stretches too vigorously, who puts too much weight on the bar, who hasn't quite mastered the technique yet, but tries to do it too quickly and the result hurts themselves. So, you know, we need to, you know, not stick within our comfort zone. We need to be outside it, but not so far outside that uh, injury is inevitable. So, okay, the next point is, is where, when we get an injury, we should take the advice of the experts. 
Um, so whenever I've injured myself, I've found that everyone and his dog has a theory about what it is and what's needed to fix it. Now, while that's well-meaning, and I appreciate people's concern, I strongly feel we should still take our advice from those with the medical training to give it. And I was such an expert, you know, doesn't give you advice that fits with what you're experiencing or what they're telling you doesn't help, then by all means, you know, you get a second opinion. However, I think sticking with the experts is a far safer bet than going with what a friend says who's had the same thing. So, I mean, I get that, that a lot. You know, every time I tell somebody I'm injured, there's always, oh, yeah, I had that. What I did was or what you want to be doing is. Now, again, although well-meaning, they're not medical experts. And maybe just because I, what I've described it and how they've, picked up my description maybe we haven't got the same injury you know and, and i've had you know people do this as well you get doom mongers you know I've, I've tweaked a muscle and oh no i think you've, you've you'll have prolapsed this or ripped that and it took me years to get better and blah 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 just go to the experts go to the experts get their advice and follow their advice uh, the next one's a bit of an odd one but i see it a lot is that don't get addicted to the injury now, this one always confuses me, but I know loads of people who love being injured. Uh, they seem to like the injury lifestyle and love nothing more than endless visits to the physiotherapist or the chiropractor or whatever. Um, now, I would guess, and this is only a guess, but I would guess this comes from a subconscious association with professional sports people who also, you know, you see the news and the sports reports, you know, they're pushing the bodies to the limits. They spend a lot of time injury injured professional sports people are often getting um, uh, treatment to make sure they don't get injured and help them recover so so people start thinking well elite athletes spend a lot of time injured so if i do too then i must be just like them you know um <laughs> and the bottom line is if you're going for treatment for a very long period of time you might want to consider that that treatment isn't working so i have a free friends who you know oh yeah no i go the all whatever it is you know philotherapist chiropractic osteopath whatever um uh, acupuncturist whatever it happens to be for them oh the wonderful the wonderful i've been going for him for years you know and every time i go you know the pain's far better i thought yeah but you're still going <laughs> you know if i if i had a leak in my house and i would say oh my plumber's wonderful every time he comes in it, the water stops dripping through the ceiling for a few minutes and then it starts again but when i call him back he always managed to stop it dripping through the ceiling for a few more minutes the, the, the fact is, you know, we, we shouldn't be, um, the aim's not to live with the injury, but the aim is to get beyond it. You know, if someone's really helping you, what you should find is, you know, this is getting better, it's better, 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 it's totally better. I don't need to see that, that specialist anymore. Um, but again, I, I know some people who just love going to the physiotherapist. And I say, I don't fully get this one, but enjoying being injured and all that goes with it can't be healthy, and I'm sure you'll agree on that. Um, the other one, uh, next one, which we kind of alluded to a moment, is I think it's important to keep a positive mindset. So and I can't count the number of times that people have told me that a given injury is a sign to quit training hard or to quit training altogether. Now, I'm only 40 years old. You know, I've got many more years of hard training ahead of me. So, you know, if, if I'm injured, you know, and if you're injured, well, be realistic. You know, take time to heal and follow the advice of the experts as you recover. Uh, but don't write yourself off or, or indulge yourself with lots of self-pity. Very few injuries are career-ending, and a negative mindset can sometimes cause more damage to your training than the injury itself. Um, so yeah, like, like, like I popped my knee, that was, you know, everyone, oh wow, you know, my knee will never get better, it'll never be the same again, and in my mind, I just thought, nah, you're wrong, it, it will, I'm going to follow the advice of the doctors, it is going to get better, you know, and, 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 and it does, you know, it, you just don't fall into that kind of negative mindset that every tweak or pull is the end of it for you. And this is related. So the next point is don't stop training completely, but find ways to work around your injury. So when I did pop my knee, as I said, I couldn't train, um, I couldn't, couldn't kick rather, for a full 12 months. You know, if, if I tried to uh, kick the air, it would, was agony, uh, kicking hard, it couldn't work, you know. What I could do, however, I could work on the stationary bike. 
I, w- I wouldn't want to go out on a road bike because that involves putting your feet down and stuff. But I can do it on the stationary bike in the gym, which actually helped the knee recover. And it was one of the things I was advised to do, you know, is, is get on the stationary bike and, and, and strengthen that knee up. I-, I was able to do upper body weights. And once the knee was strong enough to move around on, you know, when I'd strapped it all up and everything and it could support my weight, okay. I could do punching. I could punch on the bag. Uh, when I split my thumb in two, I had the hand in plaster uh, for months and months. So I, I couldn't spar. I couldn't do cartridge speed. Because um, if, I, if, I, if, I, if I was to do that, it, it was far too painful on the thumb. I couldn't lift any weights. I couldn't even do leg weights, of course, with, with, because I couldn't hold the bars and things. You know, so do leg extensions. But I was very limited on what weights I could do. Um, however, what I could do is I could work my stances. I did lots of cutter without just using my arms. I, I could kick. Uh, I could run. Um, and for example, when I'm totally out, you know, if you've got an injury that's bad that stops you for training for a little while, you can still read about the martial arts. You can still research. Uh, you can still teach. Uh, you can visualization training, which is something I want to do a, a podcast on in the future. Um, studies have shown this. If you rehearse things in your mind, it can be a very effective way to maintain and develop skill. Um, so you, yeah, you, can, you know, if you, your body's out, we'll train your brain. You know, um, so progress can still be made in in other areas. Uh, and it's a common mistake to drop everything. When, as soon as you're injured, when normally there's other ways to train and progress, you know, be creative. It's one of the things about being injured, really, is it forces you to think, okay, how can I work around this? So don't work through it, you know, give give it time to rest, but find ways to, to, to work around the injury. So at the, at the moment, as I say, I've got a slight, um, I keep saying it's my shoulder because it hurts when I move my arm, but it's really, it's my upper back, it's my trapezius muscle, it seems to have, uh, have been, been torn and um, so I, I can. I'm at the point now where I can hit things with it fine. The only thing I can't do with it is anything that involves pulling. So I can't grapple. I can't weight train at the moment. But that, that'll go. So as a result, with the shoulder injury and things, and while it was the, at the point where I couldn't hit, I was doing lots of running because it was basically one of the few ways in which I could train. I was doing footwork drills. I was doing running. I was doing uh, uh, sprints. Um, so it's been great. I've had a shoulder injury, and that's resulted in improved improved cardiovascular fitness. <laughs> you just got to find a way a way around it. So the next point is give yourself time to heal. So, you know, don't test injuries out too soon. Um, Got to be patient. Um, keep working around it and give it some time after the pain has gone in order to be certain things are healed. So you know, I've got to be hand on heart and being honest. You know, I sometimes fall into this trap myself where the pain's gone. I think, way, you know, let's load up the weights again and let's go at it and let's go at it full bore and bang, you know, I'm back to square one again. Whereas what I've learned what I have to remind myself of is just because the pain's gone doesn't mean it's healed so give yourself you know a week or so after the the, the pain's disappeared or even longer depending on the nature of the injury again take the advice of the experts and also when you're getting back into it start gentle and don't jump back in at the deep end because again I say when I've done that it's always thrown me right back um and I know a few people, where I've got a friend who um, was a professional sportsman, very strong, very fit guy, who injured his back uh, while weightlifting. And instead of leaving it alone, he just kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And now it's, it's a permanent injury. So uh, many injuries are made long term through bad management of the injury as well. And the final one is you'll know, learn from the injury. What, what caused the injury to happen? Um, was it something you did on your technique? Was it was it the, the was the safety precautions not as they should be? Had you, had you overworked it? Was the workout not structured right? You know, um, so work out what went wrong and then adjust your training, your thinking, uh, your routine, whatever it is, so you avoid a repeat of that injury or similar injuries or related injuries uh, in in the future. So there's my key point. So prevention is better than cure. We should train for injury prevention. Uh, we need to push ourselves but not destroy ourselves. Uh, when we get an injury, we should always take the advice of the experts, you know, on, on the specifics of what's needed to, um, to 
facilitate healing. Uh, don't get addicted to the injury. Um, keep your mind on the recovery. Uh, keep a positive, a positive mindset. Uh, don't stop training completely, but find ways to work around your injury. Uh, give yourself time to heal and make sure to learn from your injury. So again, I hope that was of some use to you all. And again, you know, if you want to add your comments on that, just pop along to the uh, the forum. Okay, so we'll now do the uh, listeners' questions. Uh, and the, the usual thing, what I did with this is I, I put out a request on Facebook and Twitter for any questions. Um, as usual, you know, some great ones come in really quick. So thanks to everyone who uh, submitted them. Uh, and as always, you know, um, uh, these, this isn't done on the grounds of, uh, you know, ask me because I'm the fountain all of all knowledge or anything along those lines. It's simply, you know, let me know what you want me to talk about. Let me know the, the issues that are of, uh, of interest to you. So uh, the way it tends to work is what I tend to do is talk about what I want to talk about. And these are questions are your chance to uh, to make me talk about what you want me to talk about. So the first one we've got is from um, uh, Richard Craig. Uh, and Craig starts by saying, uh, sorry, Richard starts by saying, he's saying that he's, he's not a karateka, but he likes the, listening to the podcasts and um, he finds that a lot of what we discuss is relative to all martial arts, which, you know, I'm sure it is. I've always said this. I'm a martial artist first and a karateka uh, second. And I've had a lot of that recently as well, which is really nice. I've had a few uh, people saying, no, not karateka, but I like the podcast. Um, and I've also had uh, even a few people um, uh, contact me saying, I'm not even a martial artist, <laughs> um, but I like the podcast. So that's uh, that's really nice. Um, so anyway, so this is... Um, uh, Rich's question. So he says, uh, you've spoken at length on the subject of kata, its relevance and what it records. Um, I've been led to believe that part of the purpose of kata was to teach the individual so that when the practitioner is attacked, there is, to some extent, a preconditioned response. Essentially, individual movements, or more likely very small chunks of the, of the kata, from the kata are used um, as opposed to sequences. I was wondering if it's true and generally um, what your view on that is. So, I, yeah, I think that's that's a, a nice um, observation. So if I can just kind of break that down and give you my thoughts uh, on it. Um, so the first bit where um, uh, Richard says he believes that... Um, uh, that the purpose of cutter is to teach the individual technique. So when the practitioner is attacked, there's some uh, extent a preconditioned response, and, and that's kind of partly true. So I just want to break that one down a minute. The cutter alone won't do it, and we've we've discussed this in uh, in, in podcasts in the past. It's it's like I said, it's a bit like the analogy of um, that I've used a lot of uh, food in a cookery book. So if if I follow the recipes in a cookery book, I can produce good food, um, but I don't eat the cookery book. So likewise, if I follow the information in kata uh, and make use of that in my training, it will make me a competent martial artist. But to believe the kata alone will do it is like the guy who's eating the cookery book believing it's nutritious food, you know, or the guy who's looking at the map thinking that makes him a mountaineer. It's, it's not the way it works. So what we do is we take the methods of the kata, the information recorded within kata, uh, we work the specific techniques the kata gives us. So that would be like our... Um, in my four-stage process, that would be stage two. So stage one is learn the kata. Stage two is that we learn the applications of the given movement. Stage three is that we uh, understand the underlying principles so we can vary and adapt that movement. And stage four is we give it free reign in, in live practice. So um, we can use kata to get that preconditioned response. And I may be splitting hairs here, but I, I just want to kind of 
make the point, but the cutter alone won't do that. The cutter can support it once that process is underway. Once you're drilling things with a partner, once you're learning to vary and adapt the movements relative to the circumstances and, and everything else, once you've gained live experience of, of, of doing it, when you drill the cutter, it, it kind of, it, it, it then becomes a realistic form of uh, visualization. Your body and your mind gets reminded of all these techniques and concepts and principles so it can help as part of the process. But, but cutter alone won't do it. Okay, so I hope that's kind of done the, the first part of it. So, yes, it's about getting a preconditioned response, but the cutter alone won't do it. It needs to be part of the full process, which includes bunkai training, uh, henkawaza, so variation techniques, uh, understanding principles and concepts, and giving it free reign in, in live sparring. Uh, and the second part, which is great because it's a subject I, I love talking on, um, when he's saying um, that we use a sequ- uh, sections from the cutter, as opposed to the, the the full cutter itself, you know. So essentially, individual movements are more likely small chunks from the cutter are used as opposed to big sequences. I was wondering if this is true and generally what your view on that is. And, and yeah, that's exactly how I see it. Um, the, 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 the cutter is um, a record of individual techniques uh, and drills uh, put end to end. Right? So there's often an assumption that you use the cutter. So, you know, the fight's about to kick off and it's get back or I'll pin on show down you, you know, um, that you use the whole form on the guy. You, you don't. You use whatever part of the form is relevant at any given point. And so the analogy I use, it's like if I, like the alphabet's a great analogy. You know, you learn the alphabet, you learn the shapes, you learn the sounds. They're the taught you in a given order. You don't use them in that order. You've got to free yourself from cutter. Now, all the old masters talked about this, you know. Um, uh, Utsuka, the founder of Wado, said it was important to train the formal cutter, but we must not become stuck within them. We must withdraw from the cutter to produce countless other forms of training or else it becomes useless. Um, and then he goes on to say, essentially, it's a habit, and because it is a habit, it will come to life through the subconscious mind. Uh, Motobu, who's one of uh, Utsuka's teachers, he, Motobu said um, that it is important to understand the principles of cutter such that we could bend with the winds of adversity. Um, Utsuka, uh, sorry, Funakoshi's uh, 18th precept was, always perform cutter exactly, combat is another matter. And in Nakasone's breakdown of that, in the book Karate Do. Uh, Taikan, 1930s book, where he broke down Funakoshi's 20 precepts and Funakoshi approved, um, uh, Nakasone said, you know, we shouldn't be shackled by the rituals of kata, but instead move freely according to our opponent's strengths and weaknesses. So in all the old texts, you know, there's this acknowledgement that we don't use the, the full kata, it's got to be freely used and adapted. So, um... It's individual sequences put end to end, which sometimes can have problems when people are trying to interpret kata because you've got to know when does it finish. And was that foot movement part of the technique or was it just re- linking two unrelated techniques together? But maybe that's a, a topic for another day. Uh, some people, of course, don't like this idea. They really don't like the idea of splitting the kata into, um, into sections. Uh, some people object to the word bunkai on that basis. So uh, bunkai, it's commonly taken to mean application, but it doesn't really. I mean, in karate world, it does, but uh, a better... Uh, translation would be to, and if you look at the characters that they used to write Bunkai, would be something like that, to, to chop into little bits to gain understanding, would be one way of looking at Bunkai, or to dissect, would, might be a, a better English word. So there's, there's a, an inference by the word of Bunkai that you chop it into bits. And that's how we gain the, the understanding of it. Now, one, I was at a seminar once, and a, a guy had said, he said, no, I don't really kind of like that concept. He said, um, that seems to me like he said, like taking. He said, use the example of a push bike, you know, a, a pedal bike. So it's like taking a pedal bike apart, you know, and, and looking at the individual sections. I thought, well, he doesn't understand kata. He, he's viewing kata there as something like a, a pedal bike. Every single part of it's designed to, to do a job. It all fits together as, as one big thing. Um, 
that's not an individual category is not a thing it's a collection of things a related collection of things a structured collection and a better way of looking at it, it's like a toolkit all right so it's like a tool and so for example if i want to knock a nail in i have my toolkit and i've picked the hammer up okay if the toolkit hasn't got a hammer in it, it there's a problem you know i can't, I can't do it so that the toolkit in itself is complete if i want to tighten a bolt i use a spanner if i want to chop something i get out my hacksaw if i want to file something soft i get out my, my file you use whatever tool um is, is is relevant what i don't do is say right i need to knock a nail in right i'll get my screwdriver out then i'll get my spanner out then i'll get my file out then i'll get you don't do that you say what's the tool i need in this this, this instant and that's the way all the old masters uh, uh talked about kata it's um, it's the way it, it, it works. And also this, this, that, that idea that you, you should never split the cutter down, that comes, it's, it's this motion application idea, um, which we had a look at in the Occam's Razor podcast, if anyone's at the Occam's Hurdled Katana podcast, where we kind of dissected that, and it really doesn't hold up much water. So yes, you, yes, Richard's bang on, that's what we do. Um, the cutter, the um, it, it is a, it's a total thing in terms of it's a complete system, but that, that complete system is made up of distinct individual parts, all right, linked together by a common theme. So when we apply the kata, we use whatever part of the kata is relevant at that given moment. In the same way, when I apply the alphabet, I use whatever given character or whatever given sound is relevant at that given point. So um, I hope that answers uh, Richard's question. Okay, the next question we've got, or questions actually, because it's got two uh, pretty similar ones. We've got one from uh, Josh Nixon, uh, who's uh, at CPS, um, CSPS, sorry, CSPS online on, on Twitter. And he said, your thoughts on finding time in a, a busy lifestyle to train and motivating yourself. And via fo- uh, Facebook, we have uh, John Lopez. And he said, you know, how do you stay motivated with the hustle and bustle of career, home life, uh, wife, kids, housework, yard work, etc. after a long day. Uh, what keeps you motivated to train when the rest of the world says, just take a rest, <laughs> don't go to the dojo and take a day off? So what keeps you going and how do you, you fit it all in? So um, I'll kind of address those two at both because they're related and I think they're, they're important. So it's a little bit different for me because I, I, I am a full-time martial artist. So training is kind of what I do, if that makes sense. So uh, I am very busy, though. So I get the idea that you know, at some point, um, there's always that kind of conflict of, of what you're going to do with your time. But it's a little bit different for me than, than maybe others. But I can certainly give you some uh, tips on how I used to do things and how, when things get incredibly busy at this end, how I can uh, um, always ensure that I keep on top of things. So the first one is for the, the training point of view. I think the first best thing is to make time. Uh, if it's one, if, if we're training at all, I'll just train whenever. You know, it, it tends not to get done. It's like anything. Whereas if you've got set times to train, you're far more likely to do it. Uh, if you, you know, so you, you arrange to meet up with people, or you've got set times that you go to the gym, or whatever. If you if you work it into your routine, you're far more likely to do it. Um, the other one with it as well is just always remember it's always better to do some training than no training. So it doesn't always need to be uh, like like a two hour long session. Um, I, I have a thing which I call micro training. So if I if I'm really pushed, you know, so I've got some work that needs done, I, I've got loads to do. I, I can get a decent workout in 20 minutes. You know, if, if I go go at things hard, I can um, I, I can do that. Cutters great for this. Blast through a few cutters, um, loads of press ups and sit ups, uh, um, um, uh, squats. Uh, 
anything, you know, I'll, I'll go for sprints, I'll, I'll have a quick run, whatever it is. And sometimes as well, if you're limited for time, you, you, invariably you push yourself a little bit harder, so there can be good sessions as well. Um, I, I'll even, on really bad days, I'll go, right, I'm going to do um, five minutes of, of, of push-ups, squats, sit-ups, and I'm going to do a quick bit of stretching. Uh, but at least I've done something. So you can work those uh, micro trains in. Uh, something else, I, I, you know, I'll do, okay, I'm short of time, I need to work my legs and need to work my CV. I'm going to run up and down the stairs in my house for 15 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever. Um, I'll just do a quick 20 minutes on the bag. You, you, can, you can get sessions done um, very quickly uh, when, when you need to. Um, so you've just got to find the time. Most people have the time as well. It, it, sometimes you're, oh, I haven't got time to train. And then later on in the conversation, you'll tell you, oh, did you see that film last night? You know, well, okay, well, you spent two hours watching a film. You did have time to train. We need that time to relax, of course. I'm not saying that's not important, but you can fit 20 minutes in, half an hour in. Um, and the other point of view is, and I'm sure most of you find this, sometimes, all I have to do is I have to trick myself into it sometimes. So I go, I'm, I'm tired, I don't want to train, I don't feel like it. Oh, I'll tell you what, I'll go and I'll just do something, I'll just do something light. I'll, I'll, I'll just take it, take it easy. Just, I'll just get my body moving. And once I'm there and once I'm warmed up, it's always all right. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm absolutely fine. I just need to get myself there. You know, I just need to make sure I, I turn up. Um... And I always feel, uh, always feel better having done it than before I did. So, um, and, and that again, it leads to better relaxation. If I'm okay, I, just, I'm, I had a really stressful day. I just want some downtime. I just, I just can't really face having to put myself through a training session. So, if I just con myself into it, blast through that kind of twenty minutes or so. Um, when I've done it, you know, I always feel, oh, I'm glad I did that. And then the relaxation is a lot better for, for, for having done so. So th- that's what I would say is make time for it, micro train, you know, and, and, and just acknowledge that once you've done it, you'll always feel better about it. As regard the motivation point of view, um, when, when people generally, if you're not enjoying training, if, you, if you're absolutely dreading it, and we all have days like that, so the odd day is fine, but if, if it's becoming a pattern where you're finding, oh, look, I'm just, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. There's normally uh, one of two things that's going on. Uh, the first one is uh, the training isn't uh, stressful enough. So you don't feel like you're making any progress, um, whether that be technically or physically or whatever. And that might be because you're training at a, a bad club and you might want to train at dojos or whatever. But you just feel, okay, I, I don't feel like there's any progression. Uh, the other one is that you're being uh, pushed too hard. Um, so it's like we mentioned earlier. It's, it's always you want to be outside your comfort zone, but just outside your comfort zone. So if the training's so hard that it's kind of counterproductive, that you're, you're coming away injured, that you don't feel it's, it's just breaking you down rather than making you any fitter, that's going to sap your motivation. If the training's too easy, it's not challenging enough, um, it's not leading in the direction you want to go, that's going to sap your motivation. So if you're starting to get in the habit of, I don't want to train, I don't want to train, I don't want to train, you need to have a look at why that's the case. Um, and it may well be, okay, change the way that you're training, change the club that you're training at, uh, ease off a bit, um, increase the intensity a little bit if you're finding it too easy. So you need to kind of find that balance. Uh, what can also be, be, be a good thing is as long as you've got the discipline to get back on the horse, just you know, have a week off. So, okay, I'm not training this week and I'm going to spend that week uh, watching martial arts movies, uh, listening to them podcasts on martial arts, reading martial arts books, and just getting back in touch with what motivates you to train anyway, you know, just to, 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 um, uh, to inspire. Uh, and John asked a question, you know, he asked, how do I fit it all in? And well, that's it, I work very long days, you know, I said I'm a full-time martial artist, but average day starts at six in the morning, a 12-hour, 14-hour day, including trainings, just that's the norm for me, you know, but I, I just start as early as I, as I can, and 
that's you know the lifestyle I lead. When I was employed, obviously uh, I had a real job, as my friends would say. Um, I, I didn't work uh, as long hours by any means. I was on better money as well. But I didn't have as an enjoyable a lifestyle as I have now. You know, it doesn't feel like work because it's it's what I what I really love. When, when I was uh, in employment, uh, I, I used to again. You can sneak in training if you, if you're smart. I know guys who, who would cycle to work rather than take the car there. Um, I'd go for a, a, a run in your your lunch hour. Um, I, I I'd do stuff like that. If I've got time to find, a, I'd find a you know. Which I find a quiet space and just blast through a few cutters and things. Um, there's always time to fit it in if you if you go uh, if you go looking for it. So again, I hope for the, for, um, the two Johns there, for John Nixon and John Lopez, I hope that was uh, something in there that was uh, of value to you. But um, they are, you know, I get that. It, it totally very very important to find the train t- time to do it. So just find the time, you know, make sure you put the time aside and always remember that doing a little something is better than doing nothing. So um, on the days where you really push, just do five minutes, ten minutes, you know, you can do that with, uh, like I say, micro training as I call it. Um, or, or even fit two or three micro sessions in in a day. But you'll find they all add up, you know, and walk through a cat now and again, that kind of stuff. That there is time there and once you've done it, you always feel better for, for, for having done it. Next one we've got is from Paul Anderson, and he says, uh, I'd like to understand where Haito, uh, to Rijant, where the Rijant strike came from, and some thoughts on uh, its usefulness, best targets for it, etc. I find it a bit unusual and not something that gets a lot of attention. I think that's true of all open-handed techniques, generally. So anyway, so so where does it come from? Well, I think every system has it. So it, it's just one of these things that if you play with the different ways and different positions you can strike, sooner or later you come up and strike with the inside edge of my hand. So I don't think there's kind of one source for that. I think it's something that lots of people have found uh, independently through various various systems. Um, thoughts on its usefulness and best targets for it. Uh, okay, for, for me, I think if, I'm, if I've slipped a shot so I'm to the outside of my opponent's arm, striking into the groin works pretty well with it. I also like using it from a, a grappling position. If I'm in close, is extending so like I've got a, the back of a neck grip, for example, on my partner, extending the arm away from the back of the neck and then bringing it in with a, a ridge hand strike as I've got hold of them. Uh, that can be made all the more effective by supporting their head with your head. So you. you, you your heads are touching one another, you release it, come back in and strike. Uh, you can also, if you're a little bit further away, you can, maybe if you kind of push the head uh, back that little bit and then again strike in um, from the opposite side to the, the, the base of the skull area, I think it, it, it's pretty effective. Um, it, it sometimes be a difficult one to train because it feels weird when you do it on the punch bag. It doesn't kind of feel right. So what, what I found for the, the ridge hand strikes... Um, what feels a lot better is using the bob bag, you know, the body opponent bags, human torso bags. It then feels a lot more realistic because you're hitting something that's obviously, well, it's human shaped. So it, it tends to feel a lot more effective on that. Um, you can work it on the pads too. So another thing to do is what I like to do when I'm teaching is say, okay, like round on the pads, you're not allowed to use a clenched fist. So again, it reminds students about all the open-handed shots that we can uh, we can use and striking with, because um, every single part of the fist you can hit with it, you know, it, it, doesn't necessarily need to be the front of the fist all the time um uh, so we can practice other striking areas with those as well as well as the open hand so we can strike with the heel of the palm the outside edge of the palm the inside edge uh, we can slap with it we can hit with the back of the hand uh, there's all kinds of parts of the body we can use so i agree with paul completely i think it does get overlooked um but it shouldn't. It's within the cutter. We need to take it out of the cutter and make use of it because the open-handed strikes can can be very effective. And as for Haito specifically, for me, I'm sure this, I like use it. Drive it up into the groin when I've I've slipped a shot, or when I'm grappling, he's striking on the back of the school with it as well. Because you know when you're grappling with them, they don't expect to get hit from behind, so that tends to uh, to work pretty well. 
Next one we've got is from uh, Lee Taylor. And Lee says, uh, this is by Facebook again, if action beats reaction, why are blocks still being used in cutter applications? Uh, for example, against a hook, which is the, the technique that seems to have replaced the oizuki or the lunging punch. Surely this still misses the point. Um, so I get what Lee's talking about, and it relates to the kind of preemption thing that we're talking about there. So I'll give my own views on this. It's true that action does beat reaction. Um, that shouldn't be um, extrapolated to mean never train reaction. Um, you know, you don't want to be standing there seeing this hook punch hurtling towards your head and thinking, I wish I had a way to stop that, you know. Um, <laughs> you, 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 you need to practice your reactive techniques, but you need to understand that they're second place to being proactive and preemptive, as we discussed earlier, and are far less likely to work than being proactive and reactive. Um, you can't be standing there saying, okay, when it comes in, I'll do, because it's hard to pull it off. It doesn't mean it's impossible, it just means it's difficult. So um, now, so why are blocks still been used in cutter applications? I think, what, and again, this is with all these things, it's my personal view, but if you see the drills that I teach, if you look at like the Beyond Bunkai DVDs or, or, the, or the Pinan Hian Fighting Series Volume 1 and 2, Notice how little there is in way of reaction on those. We don't do that thing of, okay, let's map out the, how fights tend to go. So we'll have one defense for a headlock and one defense for a hook punch and one defense for a throat grab and one defense for whatever and ever and ever. Because, again, it's too reactive. The way I tend to approach Catteries, it's all about establishing a position of dominance in order to facilitate escape. Uh, but that doesn't mean we don't do reactive things as well. As I often point out in the seminars, there are reactive versions of these proactive techniques, but you should drill the proactive ones first. Uh, some of the things that often surprises people when they look at the syllabus, there's very little on the way of formal blocking. They'll learn blocking, smothering, trapping, all that kind of stuff. Um, they'll, they'll learn it through the, the sparring and the drills later on. But initially, I want to develop that attacking mindset, you know, um, so that they the, the think of, okay, the fight's, it's happening, I tried to avoid it, it's now here, so I'm going to be on the front foot. And I get Lee's point. What a lot of people have done is, they go, oh yes, you know, maybe it's not realistic to practice one-step sparring with an oizuki from 10 feet. So they've replaced it with a hook punch from, from much closer. Which is great, you know, I mean, it, that, that's, that's certainly better, it's certainly a step in the right direction, but the common failings are people don't just throw one hook and stop okay it still has that freeze frame thing the blitz you know they'll be throwing many punches at you per second so that that kind of overly reactive training it's okay if you're using it to isolate a, a, a specific scenario so you're saying okay if this happens then you don't know so you're looking at that that moment in time um but to extrapolate that to believe a guy throws a punch and stand there is problematic um, and if you've got that as your primary form of training, uh, your response to your enemy's reactions all the time, then again, that's problematic, I think. So uh, I get Lee's point. It, it does kind of uh, um, miss the point, really. But I still think that we should still we should still train reactively. But we want to make sure we've got good proactive skills first. And the reactive ones are just there to kind of back it up if need be. When people put the reactive stuff first, I think they're putting the cart before the horse. So if you're starting your self-defense with, okay, guy throws a hook and here's how you defend it, or you start your cutter application with guy throws a hook and here's how you defend it, um, that is a problem. What you'd be better doing is say, okay, here's how when the fight begins you gain the initiative. Now, and, and again, just to be clear, I'm not saying that the reactive techniques are necessarily bad. You know, uh, when I go to seminars, I like to kind of teach a mix of things. Um, on, on my DVDs and stuff, I've presented a mix of things. But if you look at the way that I actually implement it in my class, which you'll see on the um, 
Pinan Hian series fighting system and the, the Beyond Bunkai shows the kind of drills we do in the class, you'll see how there's very much an emphasis in the early stages on being uh, proactive and taking uh, the, the control of the situation in order to facilitate escape. So, yeah, so action will, most of the time, it'll beat reaction, okay, except for when you're slightly further apart. But you should still train blocking. What we shouldn't do, though, is... is get the cart before the horse and uh, overemphasize the, the reactive side of it or teach the reactive side of it uh, um, first, okay? We want to take control, not responding to the opponent's um, uh, violent actions. Well, that was okay for, for Lee and everyone else that was uh, listening. So the final one we've got here uh, is from Greg Davis. Uh, and Greg asked, again, really important question. I don't think it's one we've ever covered in the podcast and things before, but it says... Um, Greg wants to know is whether in a confrontation it's possible to vary the strength of your strike. For example, say like you need to use an assailant as a human shield and you want to turn him and, and not knock him out. Is it possible under conditions of high pressure and adrenal dump that you could deliver a strike to the jaw that would stun him and not drop him so that you could turn him and use him as a shield? Every strike could drop him and turn your potential shield into a weighty sack of potatoes. Or do you simply strike as hard and as fast as you can? So I can give you my view on this. And again, I think other people will have uh, other views. Um... It is possible to use people as human shields, right, firstly. But I think that's, for me, when you drill it live in, in groups, that's not so much to do with the kind of stunned guy. It's, it's to do with, okay, I've, I've moved and I've positioned myself in such a way that one of the guys, one of the attackers in, is in the way of the other one. Um, the idea of kind of picking people up and moving them around is, is quite difficult to um, pull off. Not impossible, but difficult to pull off, uh, especially if you're not as physically uh, as strong as, as they are. So, the key thing for me, though, is when I'm forced to hit, I hit, all right? I think it's it's ridiculous to kind of say, oh, okay, I'll try and hit him with X amount of uh, pressure, because it, it, it just doesn't work that way. The, 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 it, you've got the chaos of the fight. It's very, very difficult to judge. Um, we talked about the law earlier, and in UK law, it, it acknowledges this. It says it doesn't expect you to judge to a nicety the level of force used, and acknowledges that you, you will act uh, intuitively and instinctively. So what I don't want to do is hit the guy with half the force in the hope of kind of maybe setting him up for something else or, you know, thinking, well, maybe half a blow is enough. And then what happens is, of course, it wasn't enough or it didn't quite stun him as much as I thought it was going to do. And I, I've, I've missed the chance there. I made contact once and that should have been it. So um, I would say when you're going to make contact, then you make contact as hard as you possibly can. If, the, if you hit the guy and he's on his way down, then you don't keep kicking him or hitting him, obviously. Um, but to try and judge the force of a blow, is it, it's practically impossible, I think. And can be tactically very, uh, very dangerous. In karate, we have that, you know, that ikanayatsu idea, that one blow, one finish. So that doesn't mean we hit once. It means that with every blow we throw, we try and end the fight there and then. And I think we would be wise to stick um, to that traditional concept. Uh, one, uh, I, I won't name him just in case he's not happy with me telling the story. I don't suppose he wouldn't be, but uh, anyway, but I'll, I'll tell you the story. But a, a very well-known martial artist once had a situation where he was dealing on the the, the doors um, with a um, there was a guy causing trouble, and a common trick they would use is they would shout across the dance floor or whatever, or make a signal that there was a phone call for this person, for the person causing trouble. So. Then the person walks to the reception to see who's ringing him, and of course, then they've only got to kick him out the last few feet. They haven't had to drag him out the floor, across the dance floor, or through a great crowd of people. So they've done this, you know, there's a call for you. What call for me? Yeah, yeah, there's a call for you. He gets all the way to the door, and this guy's standing there, the guy that's going to be thrown, he's got a glass in his hand. So he's standing directly in front of the door. So this doorman thinks, okay, what I'm going to do is, all right, he's had a bit to drink. Um, I can, I'm, I'm, 
here where I am now. I'm, I'm, he's getting a bit lippy. I think this situation is going to kick off now. I'm not going to hit him full force. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give him a bit of kick just hard enough to kind of knock him out through the door. As it was, as the kick came up, the, the, the guy at um, that point had also decided he was going as well. So he lunged forwards with the glass. Uh, the glass had hit the face, uh, the, 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 um, the, the doorman, the martial artist. The glass had shattered, and the doorman feels this kind of warm liquid trickling all down his face. Right. So what he then thinks is, okay, forget this. You know, bang, you know what I mean? Drops the guy as quick as he can before he can do any more damage, and that's the end of that. He goes to the toilets in the club to check his face because he believes his face has been torn to ribbons. What he actually sees is it was warm drink because the guy had the glass in his hand for ages, you know, just drunk and was had it in his hand. The, 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 the beer in it had got very, very warm, okay? It got body temperature. So it just happened. He was really lucky. The glass had shattered, but it hadn't cut him. And the liquid that was on his face was actually the remains of the, what was in it. But he said that taught him a lesson there you know he could have been permanently scarred there he could have been killed if you know, hit him in the throat or whatever and it, uh, shattered and done that so, so it was i had the chance to, to end it and i didn't take it so and he says you know that was a valuable lesson for him and i think it's always important to learn from the lessons of others so uh, so i i think do we vary the strength of our strike nah you know i mean it's it, it, it's too finite to try and judge that there's too many variables in it um You've, you've, you, we end the situation as quick as we possibly can. What I don't want to do is have the ideal opportunity to end it, to have made contact, to have had the potential to end the fight, but then have it continue because I misjudged it by pulling it. So I think, you know, when you're going to hit, you hit. You know, when the guy's out of it, then you stop hitting. You know, you know what I mean. But, but, but you don't kind of um, uh, withdraw the strength of your strike. And the other thing is, I mean, people, different people can take different forces of blows as well. How do you know? Now, how do you know in advance if you think, oh, this, this guy will take um, 100 units of force to knock him out, you know, so I'll use 50, you know what I mean, because that should stun him. You don't know that. You might, you might hit him with everything you've got and nothing happens. Some people, you know, can um, take shots or he might just dip a little bit and you thought you were going to hit him on the jaw with this blow, but you end up kind of hitting him on the side of the head. I, I, I would say um, uh, when we're going to hit, we hit. As regards the idea of using a human shield, you know, that, that'll come through the, the, the training. We can do that. We can use the opponents to get in the way of one another. But I, personally, I, w I wouldn't think about um, stunning them in order to do that. I, I'd rather he dropped. I'd, I'd rather not have the shield and have one less guy to worry about, if that makes might make sense, you know. I'd rather he was completely out of it. Even if he's even if there's 20% of him left, you know, in, in terms of, like, I've, I've dropped his function by 80%, that's still enough to cause problems. Uh, and the other one, just before I'll leave this one, but, one thing you also need to acknowledge is when you're under stress, the uh, amount of force you have diminishes greatly. So um, I, I once I asked a, like a kind of guys, you know, that, that I know loads and loads of real experience, and we kind of came to a, f a figure on it. You know, what, what would be a good figure for how much power you lose just through the fact that you're in a stressful situation? Uh, and the general kind of ballpark figure that kept coming out was around 80%. Right. So, so um, when you whack the bag under ideal conditions, that's your 100% powerful blow you're going to have one-fifth of that okay under stress so what you your blow your blow using those very unscientific figures but your blow needs to be five times stronger than the force needed to knock a guy out if you're going to knock a guy out in conflict so and again i hope that kind of puts things in perspective and those figures come from guys with lots and lots and lots of real life experience that they all said oh i'd say you lose about 80 percent of your power under stress so to, to then further reduce it I don't think it's clever. I think, you know, you, we need to use everything we've got in, in that scenario. 
So, um, thanks for that one, Greg, because I think that's an important one and not one we've uh, covered in the podcast. And uh, um, thank you for, for that. And thank you to everyone else who's submitted questions. We'll, we'll do, I say, as you know, the, the new plan is we'll do a kind of a bonus Q&A one every now and again and um, as well as keeping the, the, the themed ones going as well. So uh, keep an eye out on Facebook and Twitter uh, and I'll ask for questions on the, the next one. And uh, thanks to everyone who submitted the questions and I hope everyone found that interesting. Well, I hope you enjoyed that bonus podcast. Uh, remember to go onto the website and check out the new articles that we've added. Uh, keep an eye on the website as well, because as I say, we'll be bringing you some free uh, video content in the not too distant future. Um, I'm hoping to be able to get a, eventually about one piece of footage up a week, um, but I'm going to build up a little bit of a backlog first and then you know roll them out. So yeah, keep an eye on for that. And also those in the UK or those who are prepared to travel to the UK, remember that at the end of this month is the yearly weekend course with myself and leading judo coach Mike Liptrot. You can find all the details for that under the uh, the seminar section uh, of the website. So uh, if you want to come along to that, uh, please do so. So, yep, thanks once again for listening in. I'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks with the regular uh, podcast and I'll speak to you then. Okay, thanks very much. Take care now. Bye-bye. <laughs>